Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Hi there. As far as I'm concerned, you're doing great. I mean it, because you're still here. (laughs) One of my teachers once said, uh, I once, one of us asked her, Michelle McDonald, you know, like what's something like, what's the result of, you know, all of your years of practice? You know, what's one thing that you've learned? And she was like, I lower the bar. (laughs) I've lowered the bar a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to be here. Yeah. You know. As we were just sitting quietly before I opened my mouth, had this image um, of just wanting to sit quietly with each of you just alone (laughs) and like have a cup of tea and maybe just be quiet or listen. Or talk. something we learn in this practice of um, kind of attuning to what's needed. One part of the practice is this very careful attending moment by moment to what's happening. And then there's, there's a responsiveness, there's a conversation happening, this attunement to what's needed right now, what's needed right now. So... I'll share some thoughts, some reflections tonight on the teachings. And um, my hope is that perhaps one thing I say (laughs) might be attuned to where you're at or might be helpful. I remember the very first insight I ever had in my life when I was... um, a little, a little boy. I don't remember quite how old I was. I was less than nine. It was before we moved. We moved when I was about nine. So maybe I was six or seven. Uh, I was lying on my back in the backyard of the house where we lived and just staring at the sky, not doing anything the way children, <laughs> some children have the privilege of doing. Um, and I was looking at the clouds and all of a sudden I noticed that they were moving and there was just this aha moment of just like, whoa, the clouds move. I'd never noticed it before. You know, they, I'd 
they were just kind of those fluffy little white shapes in the picture books or, you know, just walking outside. It's like, there are the clouds. I never looked closely and carefully enough to see the change actually happening. So, you know, embedded within that story, there's, there's quite a bit. There's, of course, the privileges of my own childhood of, you know, feeling both physically and emotionally safe enough to just lie there and actually having the time and the space to do that, having the conditions to do that. And then there were the internal conditions that allowed that moment of clear seeing insight to occur, relaxation, curiosity, certain kind of continuity of presence, paying attention. You know, the mind wasn't just wandering and thinking, it was watching closely long enough to see the change. And then boom, oh, look at that. That's how it is. It's not what I thought it was. It's actually this. I didn't fully understand the significance of that until many, many years later. I began to practice and started to learn and see that actually everything, everything is like that. One way of understanding this path is that there are certain questions that um, are animating it more meaningful questions of being alive. What does it mean to be happy, truly happy? Why do we suffer? How do we make the most of our time on the planet? How do we fulfill our potential? Who am I? This practice is a holistic way of living into the answers to those questions. As Rilke famously said, to, to learn to love the questions themselves and to live, to live them until we live into the answers. And that, that holistic way, it includes everything in our life. It includes our view, our outlook, our perspective on things, uh, the very thoughts and intentions in our heart and mind, the way we communicate, the way we make a living, our actions, our choices, as well as how we train our heart and mind, either intentionally through activities like meditation or movement or art or music, or unintentionally through just living and being exposed to the forces of our world. So I want to talk tonight about two ways that this path of practice supports and transforms our lives and through that, um, our world. The one way of understanding what we're doing here and the trajectory of the path as a whole is uh, as cultivating inner resources building inner resources. We're actively reshaping our own heart and mind, that they're not fixed. I referenced this last night when we started, acknowledging how we're all conditioned in different ways. Um, the gift of contemplative practice is that we don't have to be defined or limited by our conditioning. 
we get to actually choose what aspects of our conditioning we want to pick up and hold and embrace and which aspects we want to put down, which new ones we want to bring in. Anyone who's in recovery, who's dealt with trauma or abuse, knows something about this in a deep way, that it's possible and that it's also not easy. We don't have to be defined by our conditioning. What we do, what we, what we think, what we say, what we do every day shapes our inner world. So this practice is a way of actively taking part in that shaping process, is doing it intentionally, consciously, rather than randomly and haphazardly. Uh, many years ago, I was on the road uh, kind of as a, as a Dharma bum, as we say, as kind of moving around from odd job to odd job and then sitting retreats when I could. And I was fairly sick at this particular time. I had a chronic digestive condition that led to a lot of pain and discomfort and other unpleasant symptoms I won't share at this particular time. And um, I was in my early 20s, mid-20s at the time, and I had very much a sense of needing to figure it all out on my own and take care of myself. And I was pursuing alternative treatments and taking supplements and diet and so forth. And I was down in L.A. going to different healers and um, I lost control of my bowels in a grocery store running down my leg and it took that for me to realize like I think I probably need some help (laughs) you know to start to have some more compassion for myself like this is really hard probably should go see a doctor (laughs) get some medicine which I did and that, that didn't mean that I had to give up taking care of my diet and pursuing alternative treatments that I could actually take the best of both worlds. I didn't have to be so rigid about it or one over the other. I could actually draw on the best of allopathic medicine and alternative medicine and so forth. And I started to get better after that. After I got some medicine, started seeing a gastroenterologist and so forth. It was a very humbling experience, um, but it taught me something about self-compassion and the need um, to really learn more about it and actually cultivate it and have more tenderness for myself, take care of myself in a more profound way. Um, la- earlier this year, uh, some of you know, some of those of us who know each other, my father passed away very suddenly about a week before he was going to come out and meet his grandson for the first time. I know there's at least a couple of folks who have lost parents recently here, so just feeling that tenderness with you. And um, one of the blessings of 
just the grieving process for me has been um, the tenderness that I've been able to have for myself and allowing myself to grieve, allowing myself to, uh, to be honest about the regrets I have in our relationship. Not too many, fortunately, but, but some. And to not beat myself up about it. And I can say, um, without a doubt, it would not be possible without this practice. To be so open to the grief, to be so open to the regret, and to actually feel that process um, bringing something so beautiful to my heart. But it's not something that happens overnight. You know, it's many, many years of being really harsh on myself and pushing myself to learn to cultivate more compassion, more tenderness, more forgiveness and acceptance of myself. We can do this. We can shape our hearts, our our inner world. Um, This is just a short uh, quote from uh, an incarcerated practitioner. Some of you may, may know his name, Jarvis Masters. He's been on death row here. Um at San Quentin for many years for his involvement as a young man in some gang violence. And he started practicing while he was, uh, while he was inside and he's written a couple of very good books. One of them is called scars. This is from his book scars, the realization that you can choose to be peaceful and not angry is a powerful one. It can change individual lives, families, and societies for the better, though it takes hard work, of course. I know I'll face my anger every day. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, If you've seen once, you can see forever. The question is whether you have the determination and the diligence. We each get glimpses. Clouds move. If you've seen once, you can see forever. The question is whether you have the determination and the diligence. So one thing we're doing here every day, every sitting, every walking, every moment is cultivating inner resources. We're reshaping the landscape of our own heart and mind. Every time you let go and start again, you're cultivating patience, resilience. Every time you say some version of, that's okay, keep going, cultivating kindness, forgiveness. Every time you notice that You're pushing, you're trying too hard, and you ease up. You're cultivating a wise and balanced relationship with effort and energy. Every time you notice that you're kind of a little bit collapsed or slacking, like, no, 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 come on, like, try, put a little more effort in. You're cultivating a sense of resolve, clarity, determination. And as we know, these qualities are essential our lives, right? Whether you're raising a child, working a job, organizing for change, 
in the many, many different crises that are unfolding, that, are, that need hearts that are clear and loving and stable and compassionate. The world needs the resources we're building here right now. It needs us to embody these and move through the world, offering them moment by moment, just by our way of being. So coming on a meditation retreat, it's kind of an immersion experience, kind of like a language immersion, yeah? And just like if you go on a language immersion program at first, it's like you have no idea what's going on, right? You know, it's like you understand maybe just a few words. It's like, they told me to eat, okay, I'm eating, or like, I go walk. But it's a little bit disorienting. It can be at first if it's your first retreat, or second, or third there's a kind of culture shock. We come into the container and it's so different as was Devin or Dawn was saying earlier today. It's so different from how we live our day-to-day lives that a part of the, the mind is just kind of reeling a little bit. You know, like there's still that impulse to like, you know, like, like <laughs> reach for the phone and scroll for something. And it's like, it's not there. You know, and so the mind is still kind of going, going for that. Um, But one aspect of this immersion is we're soaking in the Dhamma, in not just the teachings, but this way of being. And one aspect of that way of being is, is cultivating these beautiful qualities. Sometimes we talk about it as watering the seeds, the beautiful seeds in our hearts and minds. Use the analogy of growing a garden with the twist that we're both the garden and the gardener. We're learning to water the seeds of joy, gratitude, kindness, patience, equanimity, mindfulness, energy, wisdom. And to withdraw energy, light, nutrients from the seeds that we don't want to water Seeds of agitation, impatience, comparing, self-judgment, greed, pettiness, jealousy, all of these afflictive experiences that we can just get lost in. Now, the really cool thing about this path is that this whole process I've been talking about of the garden and watering these seeds, cultivating these beautiful qualities, this is actually not the point. This is a byproduct of the practice. It happens naturally along the way. It's a means to an end, a deeper end. And that end is what gets referred to in different ways, liberation of the heart, inner freedom, awakening, enlightenment. What does it mean to be free inside? How can we liberate our own heart and mind? What does it mean to be free from fear, from greed, from delusion, from illusions? This is the invitation of the Buddha's teachings. This is what he discovered that night under the Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago, was a certain kind of freedom, 
that he recognized is available to all, all humans. So one of the most important qualities that we cultivate along the way that serves a particular function in liberating the heart is mindfulness. Sati in Pali, which literally means to remember, to remember. So mindfulness is a clear and balanced awareness. It's being present and non-reactive. We're aware of what's happening and we're engaged with it. We're really connected to it directly, intimately, without getting lost in it. One aspect of that is the awareness, just actually being present. My wife and I took our son um, to this carousel in, in Tilden Park. Um, she and I both thought it was actually quite quite sad. <laughs> it's this weird structure in the middle of the forest. We were both kind of a little disturbed by it. Um, he, he, he thought it was kind of peculiar. He just kind of watched, you know. But um, the moment that I'm getting to that was uh, relevant for for our purposes um, was afterwards we were standing outside and, you know, they've got all of the sort of like Christmassy lights and um, ornaments and things. And he's just a little over a year. And I want to acknowledge that um, you're going to be sensitive or tender to talk about um, children for a variety of reasons whether maybe able to have children or perhaps lost a child, God forbid. So I just want to acknowledge that. It's not always um, an experience of joy hearing stories about children. We're standing outside and, you know, my wife and I are looking at all the ornaments and things and all of a sudden he goes, you know, he's pointing, he can't speak yet. He just makes, you know, little sounds and stuff. He's like, oh! And all the way up in the sky, it's still light out. There's this little sliver of a moon. He loves the moon. Any any book we read, if there's a moon, you know, not in in the picture, he points to the moon. Any time of day we're outside, he spots the moon because he's actually looking. And I turned to my wife and I said, he said, he sees it because he's actually looking. We're not looking. You know, so there's the sky, there's the trees not actually fully being present. This is one aspect of mindfulness. We're really present. We're actually available to the experience. So young children have this quality, the presence, the openness, the freshness of mindfulness. The other aspect they don't have. (laughs) And that's the non-reactivity. That's the balance. That's the, the non-judgmental aspect of mindfulness. And that's the aspect we develop as we mature. That's the aspect of the, the elder that's able to recognize that things change. It's okay. Everything comes and goes. This perspective, this equanimity, we call it. So mindfulness helps us to start to see more clearly what's actually happening in our life. And to track experience carefully enough without getting 
spun out that we begin to understand. To understand how and why we suffer. So um, fast forward from the story in Los Angeles in the grocery store about 10, 10 years. Yeah, about 10 years. Now I have Lyme disease and I'm staying at my father's house after having just checked him into the hospital for a life-threatening infection of his own, which he did recover from. This is many years ago now. Um, and I'm li- I was lying on his couch and just feeling miserable, a headache, I'm tired, my body hurts. and I was just kind of, you know, going down <laughs> inside. Um, and then I recognized what was happening. Mindfulness kicked in. I noticed that my mind was telling this whole story about how sick I was and how I was not going to get well and what's going to happen and this is terrible and why do I have to do all this and on and on and on and on and on. And I realized what was actually happening, which was that I felt a little tired, had a slight headache, and I had these relatively mild but annoying pains in my body that would come and go. That was what was actually happening. Everything else was extra. It was adding to it about the future and what's going to happen and why and how come and it's always going to and I'll never and so forth. The mindfulness allowed me to start to see what was happening and then wisdom saw the difference. Oh, and look, look how I'm suffering. Look how I'm creating that. Why? Why? Because I didn't like what was happening. The sensations were unpleasant. I didn't want to feel them. And so the mind started reacting. And then here was this whole wonderful three-course meal of what we call dukkha, suffering. So this is one of the most fundamental processes to understand how and why we suffer. And the Buddha articulated this in what gets known as the four noble truths, or sometimes it's referred to as the four ennobling truths. This is um, one of the first things he's said to have taught after his awakening and what he, one aspect of what he understood the night of his enlightenment. And it's based upon the same principle we've already examined, which is that Everything's conditioned. Everything in this world comes together due to certain conditions. Suffering is like that. It's conditioned. Certain conditions are present, we suffer. When those conditions are no longer present, we stop suffering. So we can understand what those conditions are, we can start to affect them. So the Four Noble Truths go like this. The first truth is that there is this aspect of experience in a human life called dukkha, often translated as suffering, which is a very rough translation. Say more about that. So there is dukkha, there is struggle, suffering, difficulty. Two, it's not random. There's a cause. It arises due to certain conditions. 
it can end. This is the third truth, the good news. It can end. And then the fourth truth is that there's a way to bring about that end. There's actually steps we can take, a certain path of practice, which is what we're doing here. So I want to say a little bit um, about each of these truths as a way to... Um, invite you to explore, explore it in your own experience here on the retreat and hopefully beyond. So dukkha, the difficult word to translate, um, sometimes uh, translated as uh, difficult to bear. There's parts of being alive that are difficult to bear, that are hard, stressful, Um, Our friend and colleague, Heather Sundberg's way of talking about the first noble truth, she says, it's not easy being a human being living a human life. Nice way of putting it. So there's all kinds of dukkha, and this is where the sort of Buddhism gets a bad rap as saying life is suffering. It's this kind of half mistranslation, half kind of like mashing up different teachings into one thing that are not, it's not actually what's being said. So um, one aspect of what's meant by this, there is dukkha, there is suffering, is that there's just aspects of life that are painful. Sometimes it's referred to as dukkha dukkha, (laughs) the suffering of the unpleasant, right? There's that which is unpleasant, so... Uh, getting sick is unpleasant. Having an aging body is progressively unpleasant. <laughs> Dying is unpleasant. So I hear, haven't done it yet. I will. That was a joke, but it didn't go over very well. <laughs> the second one did. Um, separation from that which we love is suffering. Being associated with what we don't like is suffering. So maybe that yogi near you who's fill-in-the-blank drives you crazy, being associated with the unpleasant suffering. There's suffering on the collective level, violence, poverty, war, oppression, destruction of our climate, our earth, the kind of suffering affects us deeply on both physiological and also emotional and psychic levels. The point here is that these things aren't a mistake. They're nobody's fault. That's part of being alive. If you get sick, something, quote, bad happens, it's no one's fault. It's just, this is part of being human. Yes, there are things that are people's fault also, (laughs) 
right? I mean, we're responsible for our actions. But this aspect of, of the um, unpleasant, painful conditions of our life that are beyond our control are just part of being here. Then there's another kind of dukkha um, that's a little bit harder to notice, which is that even the really beautiful, uplifting, joyful things pass away. But they don't last. It doesn't mean they're unpleasant. There's a different meaning of the word dukkha. It means they're unreliable. They're ultimately unsatisfying because they don't last doesn't mean they're not beautiful or good or uplifting or joyful, but think about the happiest moment of your life. Where is it now? It's memory. There's dukkha in that. You can't hold on. Right? This is part of what it is to be here. The verse from a Paul Simon song that I love, um, that I think speaks to some of this very uh, poignantly. He says in uh, the song American Tune, I don't know a soul that's not been battered. I don't have a friend who feels at ease. I don't know a dream that's not been shattered or driven to its knees. Life breaks our heart sometimes. And that's okay. Because this is just the first of the four truths. It doesn't stop here. Right? So the Buddha's starting from a very sobering acknowledgement of like, let's be real people. It's hard to be here. Right? It hurts. We can't hold on to the good things. And then there's this whole other aspect to it of going through the motions again and again and again and again. It's like, how many times do I need to unload the dishwasher, brush my teeth, or take out the garbage? There's this kind of relentless quality to what's known as samsara, the round of rebirth, which you don't need to believe in multiple lives. It's just look at what's happening every day. It's like Groundhog Day over and over and over. You know, it's just so there is this. And just to check it out, the invitation, um, as Devin said in the opening night, is is to look and see for yourself. Like, is it true? Don't take my word for it. Don't take the Buddha's word for it. Look and see. Is there dukkha in your life? And then if there is, what did the Buddha say to do about it? He said, this is to be understood. Not avoided. Not fixed. Not explained. Not transcended. Understood. To be understood. What do you have to do to understand something? Got to be with it, right? Spend time with it. Listen to it. Observe it. Get to know it. Who wants to get to know suffering? The question is, 
Why are you here? What do you want? So the second noble truth says that this suffering has a cause. It arises due to certain specific conditions that we can actually observe. If we're willing to try to understand it, if we're willing to actually pay attention to it, instead of just trying to make it go away or paper over it or blame someone for it. Those conditions are what gets called craving rooted in ignorance. Craving, which has two sides to it, wanting, this kind of grasping, and then resisting, not wanting. So this is, um, this is distinct from the general word desire. There are healthy desires in life. Wanting to learn is a healthy desire. Wanting to practice is a healthy desire. Wanting to help or improve your community. These are all beautiful, healthy desires. There's nothing um, unskillful about that in Buddhism. What the Buddha is talking to is a very particular kind of energy in the heart and the mind known as tanha, which is a quality of, literally tanha means thirst. When you feel thirsty, it's not a choice, right? It's not like, gee, I'll feel thirsty now. Tanha is not a choice. It's this unconscious reflexive contraction for something to fill us up or the opposite energy reaction and resistance to get away from or be separated from something that we don't like so this he points to this is one of the key conditions that creates the experience of dukkha that can actually end and it's this force of reaching grasping or resisting rooted in ignorance in not actually understanding what it is to be here. And we can see this in many, many ways. We see, we see it in our craving for comfort, for sensory pleasure, um, which the media and the advertising industry fuels and preys on as a whole kind of, huge industry built upon um, this habit of craving and saying, you know, just buy something or just go have this experience. Don't pay attention to all of that other stuff. Don't pay attention to what's happening to those people over there, to that ecosystem over here. Just look at this pretty picture and imagine that this could be you and you'll be happy. And craving is also, um, so it occurs at a sensory level. It also occurs at a psychological and emotional level. Kind of sense of trying to get somewhere, to become someone in the future. I'll be happy when. I'll be better when. I'll feel okay when. And then we actually disconnect from the present. We, we miss what's actually available right here and now. Because this force is kind of pulling us forward. You have to do well in middle school so you can go to good high school. You have to go do well in high school so you can go to good college. You want to go to good college, you can get a good job. You want to get a good job. So, and it just kind of never ends, right? That's the, the narrative, the dominant narrative. 
in the in the West. So we get and we get addicted to it. We get addicted to this kind of craving, so much so that it's no longer the thing that we want, but actually the process of getting something new or having something or getting somewhere or having an experience. And when we're always waiting for the next thing, you know it happens, right? We miss our life because we're always looking ahead to the next one, to the next one. So the Buddha said this kind of um, habitual addiction to wanting to get something or get somewhere or get away from something or not be something is rooted in not understanding the reality of the way things are. And what is that reality? Clouds move. Everything changes. Anicca, not permanent, not stable, not fixed. Everything's in flux. Everything's changing. Because everything's changing, Anicca, everything, including the nice things, are dukkha. Unreliable. Ultimately unsatisfying. Ultimately unsatisfying. There is satisfaction. Yeah, there is temporary fulfillment. To say otherwise would not be true. But there isn't that lasting satisfaction. Nothing really finally quenches it. Because everything's changing, and because nothing's really reliable or ultimately satisfying, the last aspect of this reality that we don't fully see or understand is that everything's insubstantial. The word in uh, Pali is anatta, translated as non-self, which is a tricky, um, tricky thing to understand. It means that nothing's really that personal on one level. We tend to take everything personally, but it's not personal. It also means that things aren't in our control. We tend to perceive our life through this illusion of control as if we can actually influence a lot more than we really can. We have some influence, but not that much. Anatta, this insubstantiality, a good way of understanding it, one way of understanding it is like a rainbow. You look at a rainbow. Is there anything really there? Can you touch it? If you drive towards it, will you arrive at the rainbow? No, there's no rainbow. And yet there is the appearance of a rainbow, right? There is a rainbow there. You can, we can see it. We can both see it when it's there. But it's arising due to certain conditions. And when those conditions change, the rainbow vanishes. So everything is like that, including us. There's nothing really separate and solid there. There's the appearance of a person with their history and life. And and all that's very real. It has its own reality. But on another level, 
It's just conditions changing. The other side of that is that everything's connected. Because nothing's solid and separate, it's full of everything. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh famously said, if you are a poet, you will see that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without the cloud, there will be no rain. Without the rain, there will be no trees. Without the tree, there will be no paper. And if you can see clearly enough, you can see that the whole universe is here in this piece of paper. The logger who cut the wood, the food that fed him, everything exists. Because it's empty. It's not separate. So what happens if we go about living our life expecting that which is impermanent and changing like a cloud to be permanent and solid. We suffer. We're disappointed. What happens if we go about living our life expecting that which is unreliable and ultimately unsatisfying to be stable and fulfilling? Guess what? We suffer. We struggle. What happens if we go around living our life, taking that which is impersonal, insubstantial, like a rainbow, to be personal, mine, solid? We suffer. Suffering is a kind of friction. Dukkha is a friction. We're not actually aligned with the reality the way things are. We can begin to observe this. We can begin to observe how holding on in a world of change hurts. And learn how to let go. And in that letting go, there's a ceasing of the suffering. I want to read um, a short quote from Ajahn Sumedho, one of the senior teachers in the Western Thai forest tradition about these three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta that I just mentioned and how we use these. We use the signs of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, anicca, dukkha, anatta, as reminders of the way it is, not as ideas that we put onto life. I think one of the problems with the insight meditation, vipassana, as Westerners practice it, is that they tend to project the idea of impermanence. People can project impermanence or unsatisfactoriness so that they're really conditioning their mind to see everything through their projection rather than trusting in their ability to observe. But these three characteristics of existence aren't positions that we take in order to interpret experience. They're reminders to help us to observe these characteristics as they're happening now. So we're not trying to convince ourselves that beauty is unsatisfactory, but observing that beauty is attractive. It's the way it is. We're not making any value judgment about it. Beauty is impermanent, but that's fine. The only suffering you have is when you want beauty to be permanent then you create suffering around beauty. It's 
So these ideas are invitations to observe experience. Not value judgments or something we need to kind of overlay on top of what's happening. So the second noble truth there is this cause to suffering, this craving rooted in ignorance. This is to be abandoned, to be released. The third truth is that there's an end. As Heather says, peace is possible. This is the good news, that we can actually be happy. Suffering is also conditioned. It's not permanent. It's not absolute. When the conditions change, the suffering changes. There's a very common adage that puts this quite simply. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. But that goes to very, very deep levels inside. And we experience this directly, this ending of suffering, how holding on hurts and letting go frees us in very small, direct ways. So, you know, you're sitting in meditation. All of a sudden you notice you're holding your shoulders a little bit tightly and you relax them. There you go, holding on, letting go. Or you're wishing something would be different. And then you notice the tension of that, of wanting something to be different than it is in this moment. And the heart lets go, and some of that suffering ends. We can learn to recognize this capacity for the heart to let go, to allow things to be on a moment-to-moment level. The fourth truth is the way that leads to the end of suffering the noble eightfold path, which is what we're practicing here. It's learning how to stop suffering. It's noticing when we're suffering, getting interested in it, and actually experiencing it so that we can begin to understand the mechanism. One of my first meditation teachers, Anagarika Manindraji, used to say, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. When I first started practicing, I felt like I was on my hands and knees in a dark room looking for something that I didn't know what I was even looking for. I knew I was searching for something. I was like, I don't know what I'm even looking for. I can't see anything. So this is why we practice this this shamatha, this settling and arriving. If you actually want to understand something, you need to be able to observe it long enough, right? To be able to like, look up at the clouds and steady your vision long enough to see, oh, it's changing, right? Oh, it's not mine. This is just an emotion. This is just a sensation. This is just a contraction. So we steady our attention in the present moment. We develop some momentum. And in the process, mindfulness grows. We develop the capacity to be aware in a reflective way. To actually observe the unfolding of experience with some perspective. To not just be lost in our thoughts or pulled along by every every whim and every reaction, but to actually observe them. And in that process to begin to understand how all of this is unfolding. When the heart understands, it lets go. And when it lets go, we taste some freedom.
I want to end with um, a passage from the German Buddhist nun meditation teacher and really profound yogi Ayakema. This is from a Dhamma talk she gave uh, called War and Peace. There's only one thing that's important to every being, and that is a peaceful and happy heart. It cannot be bought, nor is it given away. Nobody can hand it to somebody else, and it cannot be found. Ramana Maharshi said, peace and happiness are not our birthright. Whoever has attained them has done so by continual effort. To gain peace and happiness, one has to make unrelenting effort in one's own heart. One can't achieve it through proliferation, by trying to get more, only by wanting less, becoming emptier and emptier until there is just open space to be filled with peace and happiness. As long as our hearts are full of likes and dislikes, how can peace and happiness find any room? One can find peace within oneself in any situation, any place, any circumstance, but only through effort, not through distraction. The world offers distractions and sense contacts, and they're often quite tempting. The more action there is, the more distracted the mind can be, and the less one has to look at one's own dukkha. When one has the time and opportunity to introspect, one finds one inner reality different from what one imagined. Many people quickly look away again. They don't want to know about that. It's nobody's fault that there's dukkha. It just is and cannot be eliminated by distraction, negation, or any outside remedy. On the contrary, Wanting and getting make dukkha worse. They are the cause for all dukkha. The only cure is letting go. It's really quite simple, but few people believe this to the point of trying it out. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. And just letting the words settle. And trusting that whatever you need to remember, whatever was useful or important for you, is right here in your heart. And it'll be here for you when you need it. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.